a lot of horror is based on this. One of the classic sort of books that modern horror is based on this, isn't it? You know, it's really striking and really effective. It's like reading a knife. You know, you're kind of like, you're still drawn into it despite or perhaps because of these um, these kind of gaps in like, what are these things? He manages to fight Corbin off. And the worst thing is he fights him off, gets to the door and then realises he's left the keys in the car. Hello, welcome, new year, new podcast. It's not that new, it's just the same as the old one, <laughs> the same great service. I'm Matt. I'm Dave, hello. <laughs> We're back. Six six words in we managed to get before making some sort of huge factual error. <laughs> was it an error it's or was it an embellishment? Ah, hey, I, I don't know, you tell me, but it sounded like an error to me. <laughs> I don't care, we're back Yes, uh, New Year What I should have said, if I'd have actually thought that intro through Is New Year, New Book Hey, because, hey uh, there you go It's time for a new book, yes Second time's the charm uh, Yeah, and th- this new book is I Am Legend by Richard Matheson So I Am Legend is a Modernish book I suppose it's, compared to The more recent ones it's not But a modernish book about vampires uh, we say I say modern as as compared to the classic sort of Bram Stoker's Dracula yeah. uh, book about vampires. So it falls kind of within our wheelhouse, doesn't it? Seeing as we do a lot of zombie stuff and horror <laughs> and uh, I noticed things that. like that. We should we should we do the backstory <laughs> for the cho- the choosing of this particular book, which is that um, we went away uh, foolishly last time, promising that on uh, January the first we would tweet the name of uh, the book that we were doing next and then realised fairly quickly on air that neither of us are actually going to be in the country to make that decision together. <laughs> yeah. And the thing is, I was in a different time zone from you, so by the time January the 1st ended for you, I was just waking up. And and so you, would, I just got a message from you saying, we're doing I Am Legend unless I hear otherwise. So it's like, <laughs> all right, I, I, vampires, fantastic. We haven't... We, <laughs> <laughs> it was a classic uh, Shark Liver Oil piss up brewery situation. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. It was pretty much New Year's Eve when I thought, "Crap, we need a book." Um, so this is the one we've chosen. This is, and I think anyway, I've got to say, actually, it is. It is a great choice. I um, it's a. Uh, I'm not. I'm not much of a man for horror fiction, which you might not notice, given how many zombie slash Stephen King slash vampire books that we do on this. Uh, but I'm not usually much of one, and this is this is one of the classics of the genre. You know, before people kind of fell in love with just the idea of you know vampires are cool, and actually somebody mm-hmm. trying to do something interesting with it. So, um, so I think this is a good choice, and I've quite enjoyed the first. I've only read the first third of it so far for this podcast, but um, it's been really mm-hmm. good. Yeah, well, yeah. So this uh, this week we are, we are reading from uh, obviously the start as far as chapter eight. This is quite nice. This book because it's neatly divided into chapters, unlike some of the other ones we've done before. You're becoming a real uh, traditionalist for book structure, aren't you? Exactly. It just makes it so much easier. You're not going to go uh, read up to the bit about this on page if you've got the horror installed and <laughs> paperback version. It's, you know, you don't need that, do you? No. So. So the first, I mean, just before we get into the, the first chapter, so this is a, a book that was, we say modern, it was written in the 50s, 
um, and he's set in the seventies. So it was. That uh, this is this is where it's funny because we think vampires and you think a horror, but actually it's often classified as a sci-fi because it was writ- it was set twenty years ahead of when it was actually written, um. and it's got these elements of science battling against uh, a- against a problem as well. Mm. Um, which is quite interesting. I think. I think the the further away it gets from 1970, it becomes more a horror and less a, a sci-fi for me. What do you think? Um, it's very interesting that, isn't it? I hadn't actually shows how much research I did. I suppose this is quite embarrassing, but I hadn't realised that it was written in the 50s. I had assumed that it was written in the time frame time frame it was written for, like published in like 1977 or whatever. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I can see why people would have seen it as sci- sci-fi back then. I think what's really amazing, actually, given that, is that I didn't really notice because a lot of stuff yeah. written about the future in the 1950s was full of like people wearing tin foil and you know robot <laughs> servants taking you to the moon and all of this stuff. And actually, it's just it's I I haven't come across anything yet in the book which kind of smacks of cheap futurism. You know, yeah. actually, I just found it very easy to. You know, picture a nineteen seventies environment. Yeah, he's done a you know. done a great job of it. Imagine, I suppose he hasn't stretched his imagination too far with it. There's not much yeah. around here which you wouldn't have seen in the fifties. Yeah, that's true. But um, um, but I kind of feel like that was true to a certain extent. I mean, it's not like the um, yeah. Have you seen yeah. American Hustle where they have the first microwave and they call it the science oven? <laughs> uh, it's there's none of that. There's no science ovens in this, which I think is a crying shame. But. Um, <laughs> Yeah, uh, we'll see if we can spot anything like that then as we go through. Yeah, but um, the the start so it starts part one January nineteen seventy six, and the first line uh, really gets you into it straight away. It says, "On those cloudy days, Robert Neville was never sure when sunset came, and sometimes they were in the streets before he could get back." Mm. So you're off at a <laughs> yeah. foreboding, it's, isn't it? Yeah, it's uh, immediately. It's one of those lines that just set off at 100 miles an hour, isn't it? And you're immediately in the middle of it. Yeah. Um, so we're introduced to this guy, Robert Neville. Uh, he's he's checking the defences around his house. He's obviously alone, um, and you get the feeling of this guy completely isolated, defending himself from some kind of threat. Mm. Uh, and then it moves towards vampires with some kind of almost cliched classic vampire stuff. So he's got a, a garlic collection growing in his garden, which he goes and harvests every day. Yeah. And um, and he goes into his bedroom and starts sort of making steaks, uh, wooden steaks. <laughs> he's, not, he's not rustling up a dinner. Um, <laughs> I don't know. It's the weirdest thing. It turns out to have been a, a mistranslation from the original Romanian language uh, novels, and they're they're perfectly fine with sharpened pieces of wood. But if you wave "well done" beef under their noses, they just shit it. Can't explain why. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, he, but he does that. Strangely enough, he does um, make dinner uh, pretty much straight after that. Mm. Uh, he doesn't have steak, but it would have been quite <laughs> weird if he did, wouldn't it? Um, Bit, but as he's probably sitting a bit down, too whimsical for this book, I would say. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but as he's sitting down for dinner, uh, they start to come out, these vampires. And one of them, uh, who he says is called Ben Cortman, uh, starts shouting, come out, Neville, to him. Mm. So it, basically, we're, we're given the situation here where there's this guy, he's on his own, surrounded in a, in a city surrounded where it's, which is infested with vampires who can only come out at night and are afraid of garlic 
and can probably be killed with stakes, it seems. That's what he's making. Yeah. And um, they can't get into his house, but they're trying to get him to come out. Yeah. So the, 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 sort of the, the, the rules of the game are set very early on, aren't they, really? They are, and it's very well done, and it's very tense. And it's mm. it's bleak as well, bloody hell, because all you've got in this whole book is his internal monologue. And it's understandably, you know, he's kind of, you know... I mean, I don't, I don't even know what alcoholism means in a post-apocalyptic context, but he's definitely got a problem with drink. Um, mm. You know, outstripped probably only by his problem with vampires. Yeah. Um, and it's really creepy that the vampires talk to him as well, because I, I, I will confess, I watched the Will Smith version of this film. Um, oh, yeah, we should have mentioned there's, there's yeah. a film version of this as well, which is sort of, it's more based on rather than a, a completely faithful uh, retelling of it. Yeah, and one of the ways that's true is that um, they don't talk to him in the, uh, in the Will Smith adaptation. They don't, no. you know, this is like, and really early on, you know, uh, quite a big part of the horror really comes from the fact that it seems that although these vampires are very strong and are aware of him and aren't, they're not zombies. You know, I had thought mm. that they were weird kind of quasi-vampire, quasi-zombies before I started reading the book. Mm. But they are vampires and they are aware of him, but for some reason they can't operate doorknobs or, or get inside houses. Yeah. Um, but they can talk to him, and that's just the creepiest thing. Yeah, it's it's difficult actually. One of the pro- one of the things I find hard with this book is it's hard to get a handle on. It's easy to see the rules as to as far as what Robert can and can't do to defend himself. Yeah, but um, it's hard to work out just where the vampire's intelligence starts and ends, mm. and their awareness. Because you're right, insofar as he, uh, you know, this Ben Cortman guy can speak to him. And when the women, some of the women uh, vampires see him looking out, they sort of strike these weird poses oh. to try and tempt him out of the house. Oh, can you and imagine? Just there's just something <laughs> just deeply yeah. like horrifying in the most original sense. The idea yeah. of a completely undead woman striking like porn star poses to try and 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 the fact yeah. that he's so screwed up in the head and so lonely that it it nearly works on him every time. You know, yeah. like there's a that's I I found that a really interesting little thread of the character and quite kind of I suppose realistically bleak. Mm. You know, you could that's a very yeah. human a very human need to play on, isn't it? Yeah, but you have the those those parts of the vampires, but also like you say, they can't seem to. I mean, I'm not sure. I'm not sure it's about operating doorknobs because he's sort of barred his door, hasn't he? So you can't actually get in, but. Um, it seems like they, they at least they've, they've no sense of each other. These vampires and they they can't be tactical. Uh, they're just, yeah. they just they they effectively were they effectively chase as we see later on they effectively chase him in a herd like zombies. Yeah. So th- there is a strange, um, I don't know. It, it is difficult to try and work out exactly what where their limitations are sometimes. Yeah. Um, but. That's it's a bit. I mean, but I think that only plays to its good. I do find it a bit weird, but the fact that I don't know some things and I do know some other things doesn't alienate me from it at this point. Mm. Like the the writing's mm. still good enough, and it's you know it's really striking and really effective. It's like reading a knife. You know, you're kind of like <laughs> ah, you're still drawn into it, even the even despite or perhaps because of these. Um, these kind of gaps in like what are these things you know the unknown is horrifying mm. yeah 
So is he sitting down? Um, he has his dinner, and he can hear them moving around outside and shouting at him. Then he goes into the living room, sits with a drink, and he can hear the sounds of them outside. Every so often, they're fighting with each other and howling, and then they they shout for him to come out again. Mm. And he's got to try and ignore this, and it's happening night after night after night. And you definitely get the sense of a guy slowly losing his mind here as well in his isolation. Yeah. Um, to take his mind off the vampires. He decides to read a physiology textbook, um, which <laughs> bit of light I mean, if I was looking for some, exactly, yeah, something distracting, <laughs> I wouldn't necessarily plump for the physiology well, textbook. I mean, particularly since like the idea of being attacked by a vampire is the idea of no longer being in control of your body. Yeah, you know, like that's like just. I mean, he must read every line and be like, and I wonder what it would be like if a vampire's teeth bit into that. <laughs> Interesting. What a horrifying... It's not exactly escapism for him, is it? No. I suppose the point is, to be fair, that he's, uh, he's trying to work out some way of defeating them. Like, maybe... It's, it's not very clear at the moment exactly what he wants to do, but it's he, he's trying to work out how the how people have got like this, how the disease has spread, if you like, and what he can mm. do to fight it. <clears throat> um, now, in yeah, the film, yeah. to fight it is pretty much to cure it. In the book, yeah. it's less clear at the moment, and I got the impression it was more like, how can he wipe all these monsters out? Yeah, there's one point, isn't there, where, like, you know, we see him go through a, a few different occasions of finding a vampire, killing a vampire, during the daytime, hmm. finding and killing a vampire while they sleep or hibernate or whatever. Um, and um, and then at one point he actually reflects, doesn't he? He's like, kind of, this is pointless, you know, how many of these am I going to kill? And it definitely seems to be his aim mm. just to kill them all. And almost, so it's this weird thing where he seems to have resigned himself to his entire life being about ridding as me, as much of the continental United States as possible yeah. of these, like, this endless sea of zombies. It's just really odd. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, he says uh, he, he's obviously trapped in his house because he can't get in there. And he's in a bit mm. of a stalemate because he, he says later on that uh, there may be other survivors f- like more than a day's drive or more than an afternoon's drive from his house, but he can't get there. Yeah, exactly. Because he needs to be back in the house. And that, but that, that's another one where I'm a little bit stuck as to 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 what the limitations are in answer to the zombies because if they can't they can't get in his house, could he not mm. sort of just stay in the car during the night? But the the impression is they'll be able to smash the windows and get in. Yeah. So you need to have a really fortified place to survive. Yeah, so it seems. Yeah. Um, okay. I, I will say, though, actually, that um, I, I, I did prefer the movie's evocation of the place where he hides. Because this has got, like, a boarded-up house and stuff, and, it, you know, it's bleak, and, you know, there's no light and all the rest of it. And it's kind of, you know, but Will Smith hides in the bath. And I just think that's amazing. Like his his like his his fortress of solitude is a bath, <laughs> lying within which he can hear every sound outside because it all echoes around inside the thing. I just that was yeah. amazing. Imagine being the guy who decided to adapt this and went. You know what? This is miss- this is missing. Sleeping I'm going to write it. I'm, I'm going to write it. You know, scene two. Will Smith clambers into a bath and hides there, <laughs> yeah. somehow not looking pathetic. <laughs> Yeah, the only other thing to say about this chapter is as he's trying to, he goes through a bit of a process, he hears them outside thinks that he should soundproof his walls but hasn't done yet, he seems to do this quite a lot um, wanders around a bit considers going outside and then starts thinking about the women vampires who as we say are 
striking these poses outside when he uh, when he looks out and mm. there is as you said this sense of of lust there as well which he's trying to control mm. um and then he goes to bed and tries to sleep and he dreams of someone called virginia who mm. we shall find out more about later uh, cha- chapter chapter two morning is broken and uh <laughs> That couldn't be a more inappropriate musical cue, could it? Imagine filming that and it just do 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 Yeah. So um as as the sun comes up the the vampires leave, um, move away, go go and hide in whatever darkened place they can find. And uh Robert Robert has a few tax tasks for the day, which include things like steak baking and body disposal, so all the necessities, really. All the necessities. Yeah, he goes outside and finds two of the uh, two of the women on his, two of the women vampires on his lawn who've been killed in the night because they often turn on each other if they can't get him. Um, yeah. And he said, "There's this thing that that hammers home the sort of chilling nature, like you said about the the undead sort of tempting him out." And he says, yeah. "In the light, there was nothing attractive about them at all." And it's this idea of see- seeing them. So silhouettes, you can almost imagine they're, they're actually women and then in the daytime you see just how monstrous they look now. Yeah, absolutely and it is um, it is troubling indeed um, and, and just another great piece of the kind of creepy kind of nature of this of this this particular, you know, the kind of world establishing stuff that he's doing right now mm-hmm. um, i tell you what occurred to me, right is, so th- the vampires turn on each other if they can't get at Neville. Yeah. Um, do they? Do they then need to eat? Because if so, th- you know this book's got an economics problem, hasn't it? Like they they, they mm. just all wake up every night on the off chance that Neville's going to make a mistake and they're going to be able to get in and eat him. Yeah. But then, then there's thousands of them and there's one of him, and because they're all gathered around his house, he must be the only one for quite some distance. Yeah. So is this like you know what's they must be starving to death? So presumably all he has to do is wait in there because he's got more food than they have, mm. and kind of let it happen. Or do they? Can they eat each other? You know, essentially what I'm doing is taking one of the one of the 20th century's masterpieces of sci-fi horror and uh, turning it into an economics textbook. And I think we can <laughs> all agree that's the most interesting way of addressing this story. Well, it's it's yeah. I mean, I don't know. It's um. It could be that they they can effectively feed on each other, but it's sort of the difference between eating porridge and eating sort of steak. So they just you know they just want that they, they, you know something different if you like, rather than <laughs> so it's like steady. Robert Neville finger licking good. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or it might just be that they don't technically need to eat to survive anymore. But it's it's like like zombies. It's just in their nature to want to. Sp- you know, the, the disease makes you spread the disease as far as you can. So they just have this uh, unstoppable urge to to find people who aren't vampires yet and turn them into vampires. How interesting! I hadn't thought of that. But yeah, I mean, yeah, that would make a lot more sense, wouldn't it? A like a kind of chemical compulsion rather than a need to eat. Hmm. Yeah. So he uh, he gets these two bodies and takes them to the pit, which is uh, the place where they ended up burning the bodies, it seems, when uh, this plague started getting out of control. 
and he says uh, the fires were always burning in the pit, which is pretty depressing yeah. and disgusting. Yeah, and again, I kind of wonder how. Like, is it a tyre pile that just keeps burning because it's always got fuel, or is it like a like an oil refinery or something? Like, how is it... Because he, he's clearly not throwing in enough fuel to keep, in terms of human bodies, mm. formerly human bodies, to, um, to keep this fire going, right? So, what's going on? Maybe it's a a miscalculation on the author's part just to think that the sheer number of bodies would mean that the fire would just burn on and on and on and on. Could be, could be. Um, and that if you have a pile of bodies big enough, then it could burn for years. <laughs> yeah. That's, yeah. Fu- that's pretty fucking bleak, isn't it? <laughs> Jeez. Yeah, Richard Matheson has managed to take the sort of, you know, Cold War paranoia and fear of humanity that was it was fairly plentiful in the news and then distill it into a form that's somehow even less optimistic. <laughs> I mean, the alternative is that we find out later in this part of the book, so we can sort of spoil ahead, that um, <laughs> all these dust storms have been created after some kind of nuclear holocaust, oh, it seems. Yeah. And yeah. maybe, maybe there was some weapon that landed there, which is this ever-burning fire that, uh, that it kind of makes sense in the sci-fi context, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah, that would make sense actually. Eh? But 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 it's not explicit anyway. Um, no. As he's rolling the body down into the pit, he thinks that Kathy's down there, which is obviously a different name to Virginia, but um, another person associated with him. I mean, again, we can reveal this because it's part of the book we're talking about today. Kathy's yeah. his daughter, and Virginia's his wife. Um, yeah. And he's obviously lost them both at some point, although it's not clear yet just how. Um, mm. After he's after he's disposed of the bodies, he goes basically on a vampire hunt. Um, he's got his stakes, and he just goes and finds the vampires resting and yeah. nails the stakes through the hearts to kill them. And it seems that there are two types. There are the types that are, are dead and the types that are kind of living. Did you get that? It's a bit... Yeah. And, and, and sort I, of... Yeah. I, I don't know. Like, are they... There's two different classes of vampire? Or is it after a certain mm. amount of time without eating people like Neville... You know, they turn from live zombies into dead zombies, or is it like, sorry, vampires, or uh, or is it like if you're turned into a vampire while you're still alive, you're a certain kind of vampire, but then you can also be turned into a vampire when you're dead, but that makes you a kind of zombie vampire. Mm. You know, like raising the possibility, by the way, of awesome cross fiction between like the zombie vampires versus the vampire vampires versus the werewolf <laughs> vampires versus the zombie werewolves versus the zombie werewolf vampires <laughs> yeah that'd I think, be awesome wouldn't it I think there are two classes of vampire in Dracula but I can't remember particularly well um, oh are there? yeah although there are definitely two t- uh, there's definitely another story I've read where there are two sort of types where you've got the the people who are making other vampires and the, the victims if you like um, is it is it underworld that you're thinking of? It's not because they don't—they don't all wear leather either. Um, I was going to say none of them have shiny bottoms. <laughs> um, so yeah, so he's going around staking these vampires, and it seems sounds quite horrific. It's almost like I, I'd imagine driving a stake through the heart of someone who's alive with these living ones, because he sort of yeah. he says there's this sound like running water and there's gushing blood and. It all very macabre, and yeah. at the end it says that he he kept going till he ran out of stakes, and he'd left that morning with forty seven stakes. So it's a dep- and you can see again why someone in this position would slowly be going insane. Yeah, I I, I think 
um, this is one of the real strengths of the book, actually, is that it, it depicts that. And, you know, other writers, I think, would kind of spunk this set up away on a couple of chapters and just go for maximum gothic. Whereas mm. this is, like, relentless expression of, you know, an environment that could send somebody crazy and the process of them going crazy. Mm. And, and you know, so ima- usually when we read a book like this, it's left to me to be like, imagine what's going on in your head if you have to wake up and go around stabbing people in the heart all day. And, you know, that would be really depressing and the rest of it. But here, that's the entire matter of the book. And I think it makes it much more powerful, you know. It's mm. the little day-to-day kind of, like, quotidian details that make it really, really, really horrible for him. And really, really horrible for us. Um, it's a real strength, I think. It's a nasty, nasty, brilliant little book, this. Chapter three, and uh, he's decided to read a bit of fiction now, a bit of escapism. He's uh, reached for <laughs> Dracula. Uh, <laughs> Robert, mate, you're not doing yourself any favours, are you? Hmm. <laughs> he's like, how about something light? How about P.G. Woodhouse, eh? A bit of P.G. Woodhouse. Yeah. No? But, uh, I mean, it, it, it does uh, serve us well because we get to start Chapter 3 with a quote from Van Helsing, which is, uh, if you haven't read it, one of the main characters in Dracula. And the quote is, the strength of the vampire is that no one will believe in him. And uh, Robert considers this and thinks, yeah, that's pretty much the strength and, and, and why this has happened here. You know, people didn't quite believe it when it started. And uh, yeah. he, I like this line. He says, "Something black of, and of the night had come crawling out of the Middle Ages," and it's this. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's weird because it's this idea that um, I mean, this idea that people aren't in modern day science isn't ready for something like that to happen because all the scientific rules say it can't. Yeah, and I, I saw, I sort of that line made me think of sort of what would happen if something like the bubonic plague mutated and reappeared, something like that. Yeah. And and it's this... Well, and made everybody start eating their family. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but it, but it's, it's this idea of uh, something that we think is archaic and stopped being an issue a long time ago, if it ever was, suddenly yeah. appears again in a modern setting. Yeah. It's very powerful, isn't it? And again, I like the way that it impacts his life because we see over the next few chapters, you know, he becomes a sort of he he, he starts applying the scientific method to this problem, and mm. you know, working out why the things that repel vampires or kill vampires, you know, why they work, um, and uh, and so on. And um, again, in a different type of fiction or, you know, fiction that followed this, we'd have endless sequences of the scientists in the lab playing with the, you know, the one they've managed to capture. And, mm. and you know, and I've seen it done, and there's, um, there's a, is it Day of the Dead or Land of the Dead? One of the, one of George A. Romero's zombie movies, dead movies, um, where they do that, and, you know, it's really tense because there's this zombie inside the facility, you know, and, um, and it is good, but there's something I really respond to about this where, like, he's just not sure. Mm. And it's just one man being totally terrified of this thing. And, you know, he's kind of a bit of a rational thinker. You know, he's like kind of, well, this is, this is from horror stories. This is from the Middle Ages. You know, mm. what is going on here? And, and the whole struggle between, you know, rationalism and horror, I think, is really well done here. Precisely because it's done so sort of with such a light touch. Mm. <clears throat> you, you get a sense here in this chapter as well about how 
this sort of guilt he's feeling as well about it that's nagging at him. Um, he thinks about the 12 children that he's killed today who were vampires. Um, and that's playing on his mind. And his, his response to that is to get good good and drunk. Uh, he gets mm. really drunk. And, um, and then he starts sort of doing this little mini internal speech about are the vampires so bad? And he puts the case for... You know, are they are they really any worse than than people? <laughs> They're just following yeah. their basic urges and all this, and it, yeah. he's sort of doing it as a not particularly seriously, just as an, an exercise in his own head. Yeah. But in the end, it gets him more and more depressed, and he almost ends up going outside. He starts thinking of the women again outside. Yeah, and he gets as far as raising the bar on the door, and it's only the sort of howls of expectation and excitement from outside that bring him back yeah. to his senses and he ends up sort of beating his fist against the wall to restore his own sanity if you like and um yeah. and then stops himself but th- this is the this is the great tension in this book as well it's the guy right on the edge of giving up isn't it yeah yeah that's that's absolutely what it is isn't it yeah. and and it sketches that in a way which is you know, doesn't alienate you from the character. You know, you don't end up just going, "Oh, stop moping, go on, then kill yourself," mm. and you don't end up being like, you know, "Oh, this is totally hopeless." You know, somehow you end up, you stay invested in this character, mm. and it's great. Yeah. Now, chapter four, as with with all big heavy drinking nights, he um, he ends up sleeping <laughs> in. Doesn't wake up till ten with a cracking hangover as well. Um, that, another- that's the last thing you need, isn't it? Yeah, the world's been overtaken by zombies. My wife and child are dead. Everything is lost. Everything is lost, and I have a hangover that could sink a boat. <laughs> yeah, everybody, fuck off and leave me alone. And, oh, and, you have. Oh, great. <laughs> and added to that, it's cloudy. So, and on cloudy days, you can't see the sun, so you can't really uh... leave the house. But at this point, he thinks, you know what? Fuck this shit. Um, I'm so miserable I've got to get out of this house I feel so trapped so he, he hops in the car he thinks I'm just going to take a short drive so he doesn't even bother shutting his garage and he and he, he drives out goes speeding down the street this is one way of sort of working through your problems just going for a drive um, yep. he goes to the cemetery and visits this crypt which I think is his wife his wife's body um, in this sort of sealed casket and he's sealed it with sort of garlic as well to sort of keep the vampires away. Yeah. And it turns out there's a someone's opened the crypt already, and there's a vampire sleeping in there. And he sort of chucks this this bloke out into the sunlight. Yeah. And he stands at the crypt for a while to sort of. It's just him again, just grieving for his lost family, isn't it? Yeah. And then when he goes back outside, he sees that the the vampires died in the sunlight. And it can't survive the sunlight. So he thinks he's going to test this further. Yeah. Runs out to sort of, goes to another house, drags a woman out into the into the street. As he's doing that, again, he gets a sense of guilt, doesn't he? Because it feels like yeah. the kind of thing that a madman would do in normal times. He yeah. Drags her out into the street and she dies, seems to die slowly. Yeah. Um, and he drives away thinking... That's that's interesting. We've got like a we've got another theory here, and then and then thinks crap. Actually, maybe she's got maybe she's okay. I'm gonna have to check and sort of take her back to the house and watch her during the night. Yeah, thinks I've got time to do that. Checks his watch. Sees it's three o'clock. Plenty of time. Drives all the way back together. 
picks her up, starts dragging her to his truck, looks his watch again just to check, still three o'clock, plenty of time, and then, oh shit, the watch has stopped. Oh my word, Matt. Oh, you were waiting for the shoe to fall, weren't you? The whole This whole build-up of tension leads up to that sentence. And... You know, the worst bit was I was I was reading this while I was in transit to somewhere and I arrived <laughs> just after I read that line and I was like, you can't fucking... Ah, 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 ah. <laughs> just got around the block. Just do... <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly that. Can we not just... Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, that is... that is Because he's got this wind-up watch that he winds up every night and I assume because of his wreck last night, he didn't do it. So, yeah, yeah the watch has stopped. And it's really... I, I just love the way that was written as well. Yeah. He looked again. Oh, only three o'clock. He thought the watch had stopped. <laughs> yeah, because, because I, think, I think the thing is, because he realises, as you realise reading it, because you yeah. think three o'clock, hang on a minute, and then the next line, you're like, oh, no. So you've both come to the realisation together, which is great. Um, <laughs> so chapter five, then, let's get straight into it, seeing as you had to, mm. <laughs> you had to wait and do something else. Oh, um, God. It's awful. But so so we we just <clears throat> chapter five starts. You get this this real description of the horror that you must feel there. There's nothing he can do. His sort of hands shaking as he starts the car, and he he's speeding back to his house. And as he's as he's speeding back, he's thinking, "How much time have I got?" Because even though he knows it's later than he thinks, he doesn't know quite how late it's got because you can't really see the sun and stuff. And um, as he's driving back, one sort of vampire runs out of a house nearby and starts chasing after the car. Uh, so he knows that it's about time that they're coming out. It ups the tension. Yeah. And he turns the corner to his drive and they're all outside his house. <gasps> and like, and it's interesting, isn't it, that even though I don't know the rules here, I'm really tense because he's really tense. Yeah. You know, I don't know why. I mean, as it turns out, it's obvious why it's a bad thing that he would have to leave the car outside because they smashed the car up, right? Yeah. Um, whereas, um, but I don't know that at this point. All I know is he's really worried and that's all I need. And that means I'm really worried, you know? Yeah, yeah. So he pulls up outside the house and Ben Cortman runs over and grabs at him because it, it seems to, it appears that he's, he's driving with his windows open here. So um, he, he he stalls the car, has to sort of punch Ben, and then starts it again, hits the gas. And he has sort of a desperate plan to lead the vampires on a chase around the block. And it seems that it kind of works, because they all follow him like a herd and start running after the car. Um, so he, he goes all the way around, comes back to what looks like the empty house, jumps out, runs towards the door. But Ben Cortman is has waited there for him and again there's this sense of some of them are more sort of strategic and devious than others aren't they and yeah. Ben I think maybe because they know each other yeah. has this closer connection so he can yeah. he can sort of think a step ahead so it turns into this basically this fight on the doorstep between him yeah. and Ben Cortman as the other vampires are running back around the corner to get him and again it's yeah. just so tense isn't it oh man it's it's just just something else. This whole sequence, yeah. And he he manages to fight Cortman off. And the worst thing is, he fights him off, gets to the door, and then realizes he's left the keys in the car. <laughs> he's got to run back to the car. Gives Cortman a kick as he runs past him. Gets the keys, and he just about fights his way into the house, doesn't he? 
Um, yeah. And slams. It's a classic scene where he slams the door on the zombie on the vampire's arm and pushes yeah. the arm out, shuts it again. You know what? I wonder if this this scene has a decent shout at being the only non cliched use of that. Yeah. Like, was this the first time anybody had done that? Because there's not a lot of zombie <laughs> fiction or vampire fiction before now, is there? Yeah, that's true. Yeah, good point. Yeah, and a lot of a lot of horror is based on this. It's one of the classic sort of books that modern horror is based on. This, isn't it? So it makes yeah. sense. Um, no, he's safe inside, but he can hear them, the vampires crashing around in his garage because he left that open. That's where he keeps his generator. He he realises that his lights aren't working, so they've already destroyed the generator, it seems. And he hears them destroying the car as well. Yeah. And at, at this point, he thinks, well, the game's up here. This is what I've been doing to survive. He can't survive without his power or the car. So yeah. he thinks, this is it. This is the last stand. So he gets his guns, classic, opens the door, and then starts blasting. Um, but he sort of, he fights about five or six of them on the doorstep, and then he sort of decides, you know what, I don't want to die yet, and retreats back into the house. And I was yeah. quite surprised that he actually could do this. I thought if he if he went out, he'd be overwhelmed straight away. Yeah, I would have thought that as well. So there's some weird thing here, isn't there, about the sort of logic of uh, of these vampires. They have a sense of self-preservation, or they'll stay away from firing guns, despite the fact that firing guns don't kill them. Yeah. And that's the bit that really got me when he was, you know, like he's, you know, he shoots five or six of them. And there's, you know, you kind of click into the sort of action movie, you know, I'll see you in hell, candy boy, <laughs> kind of bit that you've seen Joke in a thousand movies. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. It's like, hey, deadhead, take a bite of peach. You know, it's that thing. Um, and so your brain kind of expects that. And so it is actually, for me, it was genuinely shocking when he, perfectly logically, but I just wasn't expecting this. Like, he shoots five or six of them, and it turns out it doesn't hurt them at all, or they just kind of scatter back, and then they come running back at him. Yeah, and so which which was great because it meant that it totally recasted this whole kind of shoot 'em up scene from being you know violent defiance and yeah the last howl of man the wounded beast to being like a, a totally pathetic pointless cry for help you know a completely mm. futile act and all the more powerful for for you know showing it showing it to be that you know yeah. So, so he makes it back inside and survives the night, it seems. And then we move on to chapter six, which is March 76. So it's two months later. And yeah. uh, and it's... and Talk about a cliffhanger. <laughs> yeah. It turns out that he has he's recovered now. So they did smash up the car, which was beyond repair. But it seems that they uh, just disconnected the generator almost by accident, but didn't actually attack it, didn't realise what it was. <laughs> and um, so they smashed up his garage, but pretty much left that alone. So it didn't take a lot of work to fix it, um, which was lucky. It yeah. seemed to have turned over loads of petrol and oil in his in his garage. That was one of the things that they did do. And again, it's this idea of just how much intelligence have they got? Because if you get to the stage where you've turned over a load of oil because you know it's valuable, but they obviously don't know that if they just struck a match, they'd just burn him out of the house. Yeah, really weird, isn't it? Like, and I, I don't know. Does that constitute a plot hole to you? Was that? A, did that kind of dump you out of the story at all? Um, well, I I gave it a pass because I thought, well, 
the vampires might sort of have a intelligence as far as they can try and work out what's valuable to him and what isn't. And they assume because mm. he's got loads of these drums of stuff, they must be valuable. But they don't have enough of their own memories to know what that what that substance actually is. They just they can just see things as valuable or invaluable to him, but not what they actually are. That might make sense. That's very interesting. That would that that does make a lot of sense. Although, so they you know they have very. I know there's kind of animal level of of intelligence. Then isn't there? There's like the ability to recognise, and even deal intelligently with, the thing that your opponent or your prey seems to need or value mm. and then there's the understanding that sex is an enticement yeah and, yeah you know like that whole idea of kind of you know um uh camouflage and uh and attraction and so on mm. so it is kind of like the vampires become a sort of like like dogs or something you know like animals that yeah. makes sense to me yeah no, it, it turns out that he's he's actually in a better position than he was before this attack now because he's <clears throat> he's finally soundproof the house and he's feeling a lot better. I think mm. basically because he's had a series of tasks to do which he's managed to complete. And I get the feeling this this was how he survived so long before. You know, when he was fortifying his house at the start, and that yeah. he had a series of things to do and he did them. And that just makes you feel better when you complete tasks. And the problem for him up until sort of the, the last chapter was that he'd done all the stuff that he could do and he's just in this stalemate. So nothing he tries then comes off and that yeah. eats at you and then you start to struggle. Mm. So he's in a mm-hmm. much better place now. And it gives him a chance to sit down and start thinking again about what happens next and about trying to understand what's happened so far. So we get this little journey into his past then. Yes. And uh, he's he's at home. There's this there's these dust storms flying around, which seem to have been created, sort of, by man. It's not like some natural occurrence. This, um, because they they talk about some war that's just happened, and that how we apparently we won the war, which suggests that the sort of new I I, I took from that being in the fifties that some Soviet US nuclear war had occurred, mm. um, or something like that. Um, yeah, in a way, which is in a way quite sort of optimistic, isn't it? Because by the seventies, if there would if there had been a uh, a nuclear war by nineteen seventy, everybody on the earth would have been dead. Yeah, I think I wonder if it's as much about writing it in the fifties. Maybe yeah. that he didn't realize just how many of these weapons the two nations could make by the seventies. Isn't it just so fucking depressing that a book yeah. which is clearly bleak and going out of its way to be kind of pessimistic about humanity managed to, you know, underestimate by an order of magnitude exactly how fucked up the Cold War was going to be? Mm. Yeah, although um, the key uh, thing that he is more pessimistic about is the fact that it didn't actually get to the stage of, of, of all-out war. Which everyone uh, in the fifties kind of assumed it inevitably would do eventually. Yeah, um, yeah. Actually, I tell you what, this reminds me of. I just realised is um, have you ever read the the comic book for um, V for Vendetta? Uh, no. You should. It's really good. The the um, the film really does not do it justice. Hmm. Um, by a long chalk, the book's really great. And one of the one of the the ideas of the origin of that is that there was a 
there was a, uh, a Soviet-US nuclear war, but Britain wasn't destroyed. It was mm. kind of, it, it, you know, it was kind of became socialist and so wasn't really picked on by the Russians, but it still ruined the world environment and so on. Mm. Oh, right, that's interesting. Um, yeah, it's a re- um, and they play that set up really, really well. So it's kind of like a little subgenre of sci-fi fiction, I suppose. Yeah. Of, um, you know, what happened if not everybody died in a nuclear war? <laughs> Um, so yeah, at this point in this book, the uh, he's he's talking to his wife Virginia, who's really really ill. She's sort of really tired and lethargic. She's she's not running mm. a fever or anything, but she's just. It seems like some yeah, just some kind of almost like Emmy or something. You know, she's just yeah, she's just got odd. this weird affliction where she just can't, almost can't get out of bed or can't do anything. She gets as far as the kitchen and. Just sits down in the kitchen chair because she f- almost forgets what she was supposed to be doing, and yeah. uh, it seems that a lot of people are in a similar position. A lot of people are ill at the moment, from what they're saying. Mm-hmm. Uh, they they wonder whether it's because of the dust storm or mosquitoes. There's been a load of insects around recently. It's just all conjecture, mm-hmm. really. Yeah. And and Robert's wife wants to keep uh, Kathy, his daughter, off school just to mm-hmm. be safe. But uh, Neville says at the moment that's a bit premature, yeah. and you, you just wonder is is he going back to this memory because he regrets saying that? Yeah, yeah, you do, and and it's it's route one, isn't it, for kind of zombie vampire apocalypse fiction? Mm. The flashback in which the character we now sympathise with regrets his poor decision making and all the people that died because of what he did wrong, you know. Yeah. Um, and it's and it's always the most pronounced when they're talking about their families who never survive until <laughs> until we actually meet the character, you know. Yeah. Um, it is as if wives and daughters only exist in this sort of fiction to be, you know, to so we can have the uh, the process of their coming down with the sickness or malaise, you know, narrated to us in horrifying blow by blow detail. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's quite a neat little end to this chapter as well, where. Uh, he he he's deci- he's off to work now uh robert he works at some plant somewhere and he leaves the house walks down the drive gets in the car because he's getting a lift to work and in the driver's seat it's ben Cortman. uh very much alive <gasps> ben Cortman. oh very much alive okay right. I yeah. just, you could you could do the proper reveal there couldn't you where it'd be like <laughs> in the seat was ben Cortman. Who lashed out at Neville with his open teeth. <laughs> I, I, that's what I would have imagined the film would have done. He sort of goes and sits down and Ben's there sort of dressed and normally in a suit or whatever. And then he turns into a vampire and that's when he wakes up. But anyway, <laughs> would have been a nice device. It was all a dream. Yeah. Uh, chapter seven. And he he's back in the present now and uh, dealing with these memories. And he's, think, he's, he's thinking, right, we, for some reason he now knows that it wasn't insects that were spreading it, this this uh, virus or whatever it is. Mm. And he's thinking about how to combat it. And he researches into garlic, because obviously this has been keeping the vampires away. He's been hanging it around his house and it's been very effective, much more so than these mirrors that he's been hanging, which have all been smashed. Um, <laughs> Doesn't seem to be working, does it? Like there's almost something <laughs> yeah. sarcastic in the way they do that. Mirrors, bah, mirrors. Yeah. So he he um he isolates this chemical which is in garlic, which is. Let me see if I can find it. Oh, chapter seven. I'm gonna have a pop at pronouncing this. 
and don't uh, any chemists listening um, please don't <laughs> forgive us yeah, please, know not what please we forgive do. my pronunciation of allyl isothiocyanate something like that anyway that's what he finds in garlic. Don't, don't ask me, mate. I've, I'm like, <laughs> what I know about chemistry could be written on the back of a wet Rizzler. <laughs> um, so he extracts this chemical from garlic and he takes it out in a syringe, finds a vampire and injects it into them, thinking that will probably kill them. And mm. nothing happens. And it's that intense frustration that he gets. like, this should work. Why isn't it working? Oh, um, yeah. Uh, so, it's, so it's back to square one, basically. So they don't like garlic for some reason, but the 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 logical reason, as in this substance in it, doesn't seem to have any effect on them. Yeah. So th- so then he goes to um, tr- experiment with the cross because they're afraid of crosses as well, crucifixes. Mm. And he ex- does this experiment by uh, effectively capturing one of the women. He sort of drags one of the bodies out while they're asleep and text 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 her home. At this point, he he also thinks, he also realizes that he he always seems to experiment on women, and and he mm. tries to sort of reason, say, oh, well, it just happens to be the first body I came across, and then there's this little line where he says, oh, apart from the the man that you walked past in the living room, and it yeah. seems that he is choosing to, and there, there is this really creepy part of Robert. This sort of wrapped up in sort of lust and violence towards women, which he seems to be developing as he spends more and more time alone. Mm. Um, Isn't that interesting? And I think mm. there's something there's something very powerful in that about kind of confronting the 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 darker part of of human nature. Mm. I mean, as as you know, as well as the kind of you know the 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 particular gender implications of it just this thing about the depth of darkness that he's being that he is discovering in himself you mm. know and you know he doesn't even really have a moral foot to stand on when compared to these vampires right you know yeah. he, and and he's kind of you know he's he's being um you know he's tortured by his own broken conscience even though at one point he says conscience no longer exists that takes society or something like that mm. um He's very clearly still trapped in the fact that he is he believes in right and wrong and he's he seems totally incapable of living by them. Yeah. And it's this question between <clears throat> between sort of are are they just evil people who do horrible things in the world or are people as much a victim of sort of circumstance or uh, are the processes eventually sort of inevitably drive people to becoming certain types of monsters uh, mm. because you can you can you can draw parallels between Robert here as to sort of where his conscience is and, and where his mind is going with this weird um, violent lust sexual thing that's going on between him and women in general here it seems and what happens with like the stories you hear about rapists or violent men against women towards women and their mm. back, backgrounds you often hear of isolation and uh depression and you know uh, i suppose complete rejection from other, you know they're often these weird loners aren't they who or maybe that's a stereotypical image of of people like that 
I don't know. Well, I wonder. I mean, I, I mean, you know, it's 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 for smarter and more scientific brains than mine to really dig into. You know, if there is a, a definitive answer, I think what I like um, about this is that it presents us with um, uh, the depth of human darkness and complicity. Mm. You know, rather than rather than you know Robert Neville being this kind of. Um, unimpeachable moral paragon kind of striding around the earth sweating holy water and killing vampires that way you know he's fucked up Hmm. and I you know and and so there is this whole thing about horror presenting us with the darker side of human nature not not just for the sake of having horrible things happen but for forcing us to confront the fact that um, you know actually you know what horror taps into is what what we sense around us anyway Hmm. um and uh, and certainly this kind of um engendered violence is Hmm. um you know i think is uh is clearly something that richard matheson wanted to write out of you know um yeah which is like quite incredibly bleak and incredibly blunt but um unflinching you know so he has this woman restrained in his house and he hangs across basically in front of her face and she she comes to life. So she wakes up when it gets to night, and she he's basically sitting in an armchair facing her, drinking a glass of whiskey, watching her reaction as this as this vampire woman's tied to a chair with a cross hanging in front of her, and she does have this sort of fear of it when she sees it. Um, yeah. And in the end, as he's sort of he approaches her, and she bites him. And in his anger, he sort of he he kills her and throws a body out into the street, and then goes to sort of pour alcohol on the bite wound on his hand. Yeah. And it turns out that he, well, the next chapter it turns out he's immune. But this is a a bit of the writer playing with our expectations as well, because you assume from his fear of these things. I assumed anyway, especially from like. I don't know, popular zombie and vampire fiction. You get if you get bitten, that's it. It's over. Um, yeah. But it's almost dealt with as an aside. This he's known for some time that you know what he's immune. He just can't get killed. He just doesn't want to die through Horribly. being bitten by them. Yeah, interesting. I didn't get that actually. I assumed it was because the, the vampire thing is you got to get bitten on the neck. Mm. So getting bitten on the hand doesn't make a difference. Oh right. Well, no, well, in in chapter eight, he he specifically says he's 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 known for some time that he's immune. Uh, well, is, now I fail at basic reading, don't I? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, well, maybe you were um, distracted by the first thought of chapter eight, which is very odd. Um, he's thinking about the cross and how it's how the vampires are terrified of it, and he he thinks, I wonder what. A Muslim vampire would feel when you hang a cross in front of his face. Yeah, really interesting question in the, in the kind of <laughs> isn't story it? universe, yeah. isn't it? Um, yeah. You know, because the, you know the origin of of all of this vampire lore is in the kind of um, a you know eighteenth century or before, where you know where you know religion was the closest thing many people came to a comic book with you know good and evil and kind of superpowers and stuff and mm. and the cross was held to be kind of a superpowered thing and uh and yeah like all of this translated into kind of 1950s-esque 1970s california really interesting yeah now um he, he's continued his experiments with water because there's this 
apocryphal stories where vampires can't approach water. So he runs a basically runs a hose outside to create a little stream mm. to see if that's going to work. And he stands on his uh, in his window watching to see what happens. Ben Cortman wanders up and uh, <laughs> he sees the water. And then starts. He realizes what it is and starts jumping over it back and forth <laughs> just to take the piss. Yeah, so he's got enough intelligence to be sarcastic. So I don't know. We have to upgrade the, the vampires from <laughs> vam, from dogs, don't we? I've never known a sarcastic dog. <laughs> yeah, that is a really weird moment, isn't it? Again, it's it Ben Cortman, isn't it? And I get the yeah. impression that he has a high level of thinking than the others, almost just because of his connection with Neville, because he knew him. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, that would make sense, actually, wouldn't it? Yeah. There's this realisation as well that Neville has about who Ben Cortman looks like, and it's Oliver Hardy <laughs> from Laurel and Hardy. <laughs> so the big fat guy with the tie shoes are constantly getting like slapstick comedy uh, sort of violence against him. And he, he thinks about this as, as because he, sh- he, shoot, he shot Ben a few chapters ago when he mm. went out and made his last stand, and Ben sort of got blasted back by the gunshots then got up and came running over again and he thinks that was, mm. that was looking back there's some dark humour to that that was very Laurel and Hardy as well <laughs> I just I just absolutely love that idea I um, I just just the very sight of it just uh, did it did it ruin it for you did you get an instant kind of mental picture of Oliver Hardy kind of <laughs> staggering around the place giving it brains brains <laughs> <laughs> oh, I wouldn't be saying brains. Oh no, no, of course he wouldn't, would he? Well, what is it vampires say? Hello, my dear. I'm so glad you've come. You know, <laughs> come out, come. Neville. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but in a really kind of goofy 1930s comedy movie slapstick kind of a way. Come yeah. out, Neville. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, but it was a bit. It was a bit strange, but um, I quite liked how. It gave you a sense of all these little thoughts make you feel that Robert Neville's more believable as a character, and um, yeah, it's just the kind of thing that you would think, isn't it? Um, and yeah. your, your fevered mind would sort of pick out to sort of almost as a weird attempt to cheer yourself up. Absolutely, mm. and well, and and actually, more than that, it's it's a really important moment in the book of like levity. Yeah. <laughs> where there's like kind of you have to have him laugh about something and the laugh still manages to be basically horrific but it is laughter yeah you know? um and uh yeah yeah we're back to the drudging terror then though because he he goes back out again with his stakes to continue his work of of killing the vampires during the day and he comes across one woman who when he drives the stake into her she pretty much just disappears in a in a sort of cloud of like salt I suppose yeah um and he think Robert thinks that that maybe that's because she was so like old that um all the fluid had drained out of her so there was nothing to to leak out when he killed her and yeah. it, it, it is a classic scene this from from vampire fiction isn't it where you drive a yeah. stake into a vampire's heart and it disappears in a cloud of dust yeah, and it really shocks Neville, but he thinks maybe this is one of the vampires that's been around for hundreds of years, and yeah. that gives you another possible uh, idea into what 
what happened here. Maybe these vampires just turned up from who've been dormant for years, for centuries, yeah, and just decided and to go this. eating. Yeah. Ugh. And that's what when we round off uh, as he's thinking once again about his wife, and that that ends our part of the book today. What a ro- what a ride! <laughs> Bloody hell! You're not kidding. It's like it's 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 like being strapped to a really old rickety roller coaster, right? One which has had no maintenance done on it for many many years, with a fucking rocket engine strapped on the back. <laughs> just just absolutely no padding at all. It's just. <laughs> <laughs> it does thunder along, doesn't it? This book. It certainly does. Um, it's uh, yeah, it's a, it's a lot of fun. But ne- next uh, next week we will read as far as chapter sixteen. Right, you are. So, uh, and then that will give us uh, the last few chapters to round off for part three. And as part of that, we'll do a few comparisons with the film and obviously your feedback as well. Speaking of your feedback, if you want to uh, get involved in our reading of uh, Richard Matheson's I Am Legend, then send your feedback to sharkliveroilpodcast at gmail.com. That's sharkliveroilpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter at sharkliveroil. Uh-huh. Anything else before we round off, Dave? No, no. I'm just really looking forward to the next bit. Yeah, it's a real, it's a classic page turner, isn't it? It's Absolutely. really good at. I mean, you could fly through this in an afternoon, really. And I have in the past, so um, mm. I'd highly recommend. It. And it's not, it's not too big a book either. It's not a very big read. Um, mm. So if you haven't got it yet, why not pick it up, give it a try, and we will be back next week for part two. Brilliant. Until then, cannot wait. Bar the doors, and no matter how, what poses the vampires strike, or how nicer they ask you to come out, stay inside. <laughs> it had to stay be that safe. you went back to at the end, didn't it? <laughs> I'm disgusted. I'm appalled. I, I, all I want to say, Dave, is stay inside, stay safe, stay alive. Until next time. <laughs> But I, I noticed there that you've said you've said the title wrong, Matt. You've said, yeah. well, I mean, I am legend. I, I am, I am legend. Hi, Mo. Who's he? He's legend. No, no, no. Surely, surely, you've got to give it some. Um, you've got to give it some welly. You've got to. I am like a wrestler coming into yeah, the uh, exactly. arena. How is there not a wrestler <laughs> called I Am Legend? Or Richard, Richard Neville would be a particularly low-key name. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's Robert Neville. Robert Neville, sorry. Richard Neville. So it'd be even more low-key. Even more low-key. <laughs> <laughs> fuck's Richard? <laughs> Do you know what I've just remembered, actually? Richard Neville is... This is really bad that I know and remember this, but it's the name of one of the one of the... Guys from Five. Remember that boy band, Five? <laughs> One of them He's definitely not Richard legend. Neville. He is not legend. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
I am Myth. <laughs> That'd be great if it was a wrestler, though, could I imagine? Because the, the ending, each time someone could ask him like that question, like, who is this guy? Or, who are you? <laughs> just go, hi. Right. No, no, come on, you've got to give your, your rendition of it. Now I've gone I, I went I went full on Mexican wrestling melodramatic about it. I want to hear your um your rendition of it. Since well, it's an idea that I stole from you in the first place, I want to hear it. <laughs> well we've got three weeks of this. So <laughs> I don't want to keep wanna... it as a piece of a special extra for later on in the Yeah. Brilliant. It may be part two or part three you'll hear a special intro. But uh, you know, let's just start things off on an even keel. Okay. All right. uh, well, where I've made an ass out of myself, but you're not going to, right? 